1: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hello, listeners. This is Sophia with an announcement. Season four is about to start, and we have some great episodes planned. The last few weeks have been busy for us in our personal lives, and we apologize for our spotty release schedule lately. We're excited to bring you more of the content you've grown to love. So today, we're going to have a rerun, the last one we'll have for a while, we promise, of our first episode This episode is a little rough at parts, but we're choosing to rerun it because it captured the spirit of the podcast so elegantly. So, without further ado, here's Breaking Math, Episode 1, Forbidden Formulas. Hey, Breaking Math fans. First, I want to thank you for listening. I have an important message for everyone. You can start your own podcast right now with Anchor. Anchor lets you create and distribute your own podcast. Just get an idea, record, and upload. It's just that easy. Anyone can do it. I'm on my way to accomplishing my dream, and you can too. Just get on your device's app store and download Anchor. It contains everything you need to make a podcast. With Anchor, you can put your podcast on all the big platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon, and more. Reach the whole world with Anchor. Best of all, Anchor is free. You have nothing to lose with a free platform. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, my name is Jonathan. And my name is Gabriel. And you're listening to Breaking Math. We don't want to make a big deal out of the first episode, but we thought it'd be nice to explain why we're doing what we're doing here and we think you'll be pleasantly surprised that you found something great.
3: Here at Breaking Math, the goal for the podcast is to make mathematics, even higher concepts in mathematics, so enjoyable that you can literally bring it up in a conversation at a party. And yeah, we know how that sounds.
2: It works though. I brought up math while flirting, and it actually worked. <laughs> wow,
3: that's amazing. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't have anything to talk about on a date or at parties, why not make it math?
2: Now, the Platonic ideal that has been embodied perhaps the most powerfully since the Enlightenment, with the advent of the mathematization of physical laws, is something that we assert exists in every topic. That's to say, math is not only in everything, but is everything. And if you understand anything, you understand math without even knowing it. Every other week, we're going to be covering an advanced mathematical topic in a way that anyone who can spare 45 minutes can begin to grasp.
3: That is our aim. In the next few episodes, we intend to cover Shannon's information theory which is a really cool way to measure the amount of interesting things in the universe. We plan to talk a lot about the history of computation. Now, you might think that this is just computers in the last 100 years or 200 years or so. This actually goes back 40,000 years. We also plan to talk about chaos theory. And yes, as we all know, that's where a butterfly's missing flaps may change where tornadoes happen. And we also intend to talk about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in physics. Or, why is math often invented before it has a physical use, and vice versa? We would actually like to take on the daunting task of bringing all of these things together into a topic all about human consciousness. And we know this is going to get a little bit weird, but we will still teach you things that are all firmly rooted in mathematics.
2: And we hope that anyone in eighth grade or above will be able to enjoy these episodes. And those of you who are more technically minded, we'll have a write-up and other multimedia online or on uh, Facebook. We'll give you the link at the end of the episode.
3: And in every episode, we will have a guest or two joining us. Some will be mathematicians, some will be engineers, some will be artists, and some will be your everyday layman. We just, we like to hear from everyday folks who may not have a mathematical
2: background. Exactly. Today, however, we'll be talking about the history of elitism in math. And joining us today, will you introduce yourself, Amy? My name is Amy
1: Lynn. I actually, I got my Bachelor of Science in Mathematics at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, New Mexico Tech, down in Socorro. That's where I know Gabriel. That's how I got roped into this. We're Facebook friends. Um, I am a math teacher, so I went to grad school for two years before realizing that I was here because I wanted to teach. I went back and got certified in secondary education, and I teach at a public charter school here in Albuquerque, the Public Academy for Performing Arts, so I know lots of artists who are afraid of math, and that's why I'm here. I want to help people to to understand math better so that they don't have to be afraid of it.
2: Now, having been acquainted with the concept of the show, what do you hope people will get out of this?
1: I'm hoping that people will appreciate mathematics the way, not necessarily exactly the way I do, that I I understand it at a level that I think most people don't, or at least some branches of mathematics, but I think math is really beautiful, and when people are afraid of it, they don't ever get to experience that beauty.
2: And for some of our listeners who may be new to the concept of mathematical beauty, can you give us a real quick rundown?
1: Well, to me, math is beautiful because it's perfect. That it is a closed system, depending on the branch you're working in, but it's it's a beautiful system that theoretically is perfect, right? Real world is messy.
3: Nice, nice. You know, I'm very excited about your expertise and your perspective, and this brings back to the whole idea of how, how it is that we're going to make math accessible to the crowds. One thing I did want to mention, obviously, one goal is to talk about it on this podcast by varying topics and varying perspectives the hope perhaps someday we can actually have a youtube uh, channel where we've got videos as well as visuals in general that will also help with that concept in the meantime i'm really really excited that we have uh, math
1: educators with us and anything you hate about math i am not a big fan of probability and statistics i took one class and that was plenty it just there are so many different branches of mathematics that's some that's another misconception that people have that math is this one specific topic and it's it's Multitudes and so I was never very good at probability and statistics and so I didn't like it. It's the grammar of math in my mind Now without further
2: ado the history of elitism in math part one forbidden formulas corruption in math From Pythagoras to Einstein from the banks of the Nile to the streamlined curves of the LHC Math has shown itself again and again to be fundamental to the way that we interact with the world then why is math such a pain for so many people our answer is simple. Math is, and always has been, in one way or another, guarded as an elite skill. We'll visit the worlds that were shaped by math, the secrets people died for, the false gods created through this noble science, and the gradual chipping away by a public who, knowingly or not, has always yearned for this magical skill. So what is it, and how can we make it better? All of this and more on this episode of Breaking Math.
3: Hello. Once again, I'm Gabriel.
2: And I'm Jonathan. And you're listening to Breaking Math. Our topic today is elitism in math.
3: In short, um, with elitism, it's this concept that something is not accessible to the masses. It's only accessible to a select group of people. There are many, many uh, ways that elitism manifests itself in mathematics and in many other topics, of course.
2: And basically the reason why is because it's useful. People guard things jealously... It's a resource, and if you can restrict it, then it's an elite skill. And it doesn't have to be.
3: And, of course, in our current podcast, we have a, a lot we plan to talk about that uh, support the idea of uh, an elitism with mathematics. One example nowadays that we uh, have mentioned before is when you research an article on Wikipedia in mathematics or in other topics, the elitism is that the jargon is so, so thick that you really have to have a firm background in mathematics to make any sense of it. And, therefore, it's it's it, it's very inaccessible to Many people. Wouldn't you all say that's a a modern example? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, again, our goal is to actually combat that. So I I really look forward to uh, introducing a concept that may be jargon heavy, but then saying, in other words. And as we said earlier, I I think our, our mission is to really bring this down to an eighth grade level so that our listeners, by and large, should be able to understand these concepts. And maybe then they can even look at the Wikipedia article and make more sense of it.
2: Yeah, we're going all the way back 100 centuries to the advent of agriculture and the flooding of the Nile. Floods in certain types of rivers occur periodically, so periodically that they can be predicted by the movement of the stars. And this was one of the first things that people noticed. It was a boon to agricultural business. One crucial discovery that led to widespread agriculture was just having walls on the banks of the Nile that tracked the comings and goings of the water. And with just the ability to count and be patient, mathematics was in a way born. Some people say it had more to do with fortune telling, but that's a topic for another episode.
3: Wow, interesting. So agriculture and flooding, and really it just comes down to counting. So there were those who basically wised up and they were able to count, was it uh, calendar
2: days? Is that right? Uh, yes. They. Uh, it was the ascension, I believe, of Sirius that was the sign of the flooding of the Nile, uh, that would deposit silt. Okay.
3: And then basically, through through people who were able to keep track of the days, so it really, if it comes down to um, establishing a calendar, you could predict when the floods would happen. And that, that obviously gave you an awesome sense of power if you knew a flood was going to happen on whatever day, you could then be um, how shall I phrase this? You could threaten people with punishment from the gods if they don't comply and then say, you know, the gods are going to to flood this whole area. Um, and then obviously you knew the flood was going to happen. So you had that insider knowledge and then the people were forced to believe you. And they say, wow, this person has a direct line to God. He knows the future. He can predict floods. But of course, the reality is it is that floods are annual and they're predictable. So that that's a ferocious power. And it's simple too. It's only counting. They don't actually have any direct line to God. They're not better. They're not elite. All they know is how to count. So that's, the, that's amazing.
2: But it was this sort of patience that really laid the foundation for mathematics. Right across the Mediterranean from the kingdom of Egypt lay a very different sort of place where ideas rather than dynasties distinguished subculture from subculture. But not all was rosy in such a place. People suffered, fought and even died to defend ideas, which would seem innocuous to the modern mind.
3: Of course, what we're talking about is the kingdom of ancient Greece. And I think that it's very, very hard to do uh, ancient Greek mathematics justice in a single podcast. Our entire podcast, all of the episodes could be about ancient Greek math, and we we would still not touch the surface.
2: Now, Amy, any uh, views on ancient Greek math?
1: Well, what I find really interesting is that The transfer from Egyptian mathematics to Greek mathematics was a transfer from application to theory, Uh, that mathematics really took a leap, that Egyptians were about, you know, I need to predict the flood. And then once there was a flood, I need to be able to draw border lines on whose land was whose, that they used geometry very effectively in ancient Egypt. And it was the Greeks who kind of took that learning and then from there went from application to the more advanced mathematics that we we
2: attribute to the Greeks of theory and knowledge for the sake of knowledge. One thing that that immediately reminds me of is in the 19th century, how number theory was purely a game and now we use it every day for credit card transactions, for bank statements anytime you do anything private online you're using mathematics from the 1800s that was just done by people who appreciated the beauty of math
3: that's so cool that's so cool i just saw a a recent ted talk in fact where they talked about uh, that that we have no idea the the applicability for for knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That is, if you do research, you can't always say this is for this purpose. And in the case of mathematics, oh my gosh! I mean, not to jump topics here, but there's so many examples of discoveries in mathematics that have an amazing relevancy later on, as you had said.
2: And I think this is very true. When you're trying to prove something, it's like trying to find your way to the store in a car, where your first stop, you end up at the park. Second stop, you're on the moon. Third stop, oh, you're finally at the store. (laughs) I like it. Now, we have um, a short story about Mino Slave by uh, guest Ian McLaughlin. Gabriel met him on the campus of UNM.
3: Yes, I was very, very excited to uh, run into Ian. Uh, I literally was walking around UNM and I was asking folks who I ran into if they'd be interested in being on a podcast about mathematics. Lo and behold, I run into the student, Ian uh, McLaughlin, and he is a philosophy and English major. But he was very, very happy to share with us the story of Socrates and uh, Mino's slave. Here we are talking with Ian McLaughlin again, the English and philosophy major. And he said in my conversation, especially for our podcast, on math and elitism, that it would be great to talk about the story of Socrates and how he taught uh, geometry to a slave. Uh, I'd love to hear your story. Okay, so in the Mino dialogue, uh, Socrates
0: is talking with Mino, uh, and Mino says that slaves can't learn math because it just has something inherent to do with them being a slave, and Socrates. as usual, plays devil's advocate, just keeps asking questions, and eventually he calls one of Mino's slaves over, and he tries to teach him a little bit of geometry. Uh, So he draws a square in the dirt on the ground, and he tells the slave each side of this square is one unit, and that means that the square has an area of one square unit. How would we make a square with an area of two square units? Well, the slave, not having any math training, did what most would do, and drew another three squares around it, giving it uh, giving it two units on each side. Well, Socrates says, that's a good try, but that has an area of four square units because it's got four one-unit squares, and so he says to the slave, okay, so I'll, I'll show you how to double the area, and he uh, draws a square using the diagonal of each of those four squares that the slave had drawn, and he says, see how this... Is exactly half the size of the one that you drew because it cuts each one in half on the diagonal. And the slave says, "Yeah." And he says, "Well, what does that mean?" He says, "It means it has half the area, uh, which means that the area is two. And uh, so, and I think it's funny that they don't have a way to measure the length of that size mm-hmm. in Greek in ancient Greek mathematics, yeah. but um, but. There we go. And then the slave was able to repeat back the theory behind it, proving that slaves could, in fact,
3: learn uh, mathematics. Oh, man, gosh, that is so cool. I was doing it in my head as well, and I, uh, uh, I'm i not sure if I should fully disclose this, but in my head I thought, well, you know, just sure, I'll just double the side. Duh, I'm an electrical engineer graduate student, and <laughs> just in that story. <laughs> okay, wow, that's very cool, very cool. Awesome, dude, awesome wow that that was an amazing story i i really enjoyed that story now for our listeners i don't know if you're doing what i was doing that is following along with ian's story i tried drawing the square and i tried to double it I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I made the exact same mistake that Mino did the first time. Now, full disclosure, I am an electrical engineering graduate student who has a firm, robust background in math, and I made
1: that same mistake.
2: (laughs) Now, Amy, as an educator, I'd love to hear your impression of this. Well, the first time
1: I heard this story, I actually went back to my school, and with my calculus class, I introduced this problem. I was like, you guys will think this is cool. How do you make a square that has two square units, right? And their immediate thought was the one that I immediately had. Well, obviously the side length has to be the square root of two, but how do you do that, right? How would you manage to do that? Square root of two is an irrational number which cannot be measured. And so how do we create an irrational side length? I was actually interested to see that my students went about it a slightly different way, that they took two square units and then cut those in half and reshaped them into, a two by two unit square. So I was pretty impressed that they were able to, to think outside the box because we get so restricted and I know advanced mathematics that it's going to be the root 2, but we don't know how to get there because we don't have to.
2: Now, one thing that strikes me is that what you've described, thinking that the square root of 2 should be immediately the side is the difference between knowing and understanding. You can know what a diffeomorphism is, but if you don't have a firm grasp on moving surfaces, then there's no way that you can understand certain theorems. You could parrot them, basically.
3: You know, um, aside from the mathematics itself, which is a really, really interesting topic, I think this is a phenomenal example of elitism in mathematics because clearly Mino was under the impression that a slave did not have the intellect to understand mathematical concepts. And as Socrates often does, he simply proved him wrong. He proved that a slave absolutely has the ability to understand these mathematical concepts. I mean, that's, that's also a great commentary on how, how strangely we as humans treat other humans and, and the stories we make up in our mind about other humans in order to feel elite. What, what a social commentary.
2: Back in the early 1800s, mid-1800s, when psychiatry was in its infancy, but slavery hadn't gone away yet, um, they invented a disease that apparently only slaves can get, drapetomania, the disease of being lazy, and which is just awful in like 8,000 different ways. One thing, though, Socrates, the guy from the story, we know that he didn't write anything down, and everything that we know about him is second-hand, and it was written in an era where putting words into other people's mouths was seen simply as a rhetorical device, rather than plagiarism, and it's a liberty that some argue that Plato took. An interesting takeaway, however, is that whether or not this was a true story or it was just Socrates' fan fiction, it was written in a society that valued knowledge, and it hid it from the lower classes— Uh, That continued until the Library of Alexandria and beyond, and we argue today. With information, this is nothing new, obviously. But With something like mathematics, there's no doubt that this takes concerted efforts.
3: Concerning elitism, there's even examples of that with regards to the cult of Pythagoras.
2: Yeah, he was afraid of beans because of flatulence. Uh, He was a vegan and a cult leader. Uh, Cults, if you don't really know how they operate, quick tangent... They deprive humans of sleep and calories. Now, we're going to tell you real quick about the story of Hippasus. Hippasus was a Pythagorean, and he was drawn to them like so many others were because they had knowledge, and humans are drawn to knowledge. But unlike the others, he felt the need to divulge a deadly secret. The ratio of most diagonals of rational numbers are irrational.
3: We know from school, from elementary and middle school, that there is the Pythagorean Theorem, which, of course, that's when you're finding the, the uh, length of the hypotenuse of a triangle, the length of the long side of a right triangle. The Pythagorean Theorem, as we all know, is... Um, the square root of a squared plus b squared is the length of c, or the hypotenuse. That obviously is a tribute to Pythagoras. There's other things that Pythagoras uh, was known for as well.
2: Uh, music was uh, his main contribution um, for many years. He discovered the thing about uh, if you take rate shows of small integers, they tend to sound good together. There's very... Very little doubt that he did not invent the Pythagorean theorem. Interesting.
3: Yeah. Actually, I have heard varying stories about the Pythagorean theorem. I guess the the point is he was firmly established among the Greek mathematicians, which is, you know, quite, um, that's quite a feat. So even as a, a person who made contributions to mathematics, he still had a lot of quirks.
2: Oh, he was oh, a kook. <laughs> oh, completely. They slaughtered him because he uh, wouldn't uh, cross a field of beans. He was trying to run away, and he refused, and that was the end of Pythagoras.
3: Wow, that I did not know.
2: And, and Hippasus, who we mentioned earlier, uh, was killed by the Pythagoreans, according to stories. Some people say he was thrown off a boat, stabbed. There's many different interpretations.
3: Tell me again why it is
2: that Hippasus met his fate. He revealed the secret of irrational numbers.
3: We mentioned briefly that that obviously, as you said earlier, um, we we know that that a lot of cults actually can operate by depriving people of both sleep and calories. Now, this is interesting. This actually relates directly to human behavior. That is to say, when when you're robbed of sleep and when you're robbed of calories, you will be submissive. Um, there's more to it than that. It's not. It's it's almost a survival mechanism. If your caloric intake and if your sleep are controlled, and, and forgive me, I don't, I don't quite know by exactly what degree, but you will be submissive, it's been shown.
2: Yes, which makes sense, evolutionarily speaking, uh, if you're in a situation where there's very few calories, you have to work with your fellow human beings to survive.
3: So that's a way of manipulating, that's a way of controlling people, and that that's been shown to be successful in cult. I'd love to have more examples of, of what we would call cults using that method to uh, control Pythagoras was in a position of power. As a cult leader, he had many ways of manipulating information.
2: Of course, our main topic today is essentially that, the manipulation of information. That's what elitism is. And Pythagoras, even someone who is now sort of revered as much as he, was at his heart a manipulator, a person who was an elite, and a person who would kill people to control the information that he wanted to still control. Elitism was not far from him.
3: But why is it that that people were persecuted for um, revealing the knowledge of irrationals?
2: It was because of the ancient Greek sort of philosophy, um, worldview that these Pythagoreans had that whole numbers were perfect. They believed that the sum of 4 plus 3 plus 2 plus 1 being 10 was a sacred thing. What an irrational number is, is suppose you have two integers, an integer is just a whole number, and you divide one by the other. You'll get another number. You can't do that with every single number. There are c- certain numbers like the square root of two where there's no two integers that you can divide that equal it.
3: Okay, very good. And then, of course, uh, you know, there's just, real, real briefly, there's many examples of irrational numbers. As we said, the square root of two, also pi.
2: It's provable that there's more irrational numbers than rational numbers. That's fascinating, actually. Correct. Correct. <laughs> we better make sure of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, so what I wanted to mention about Pythagoras and his followers, he used... Knowledge as his carrot, right? That he kept people following him by offering them enlightenment, which is not an unknown way to get followers, I think. But it was interesting to me that the Greeks were so enamored of mathematics that they were willing to sacrifice food, sacrifice health and freedom in order
2: to learn. It really does show the essence of Mathematical beauty, how is basically intoxicating. And I really do believe that that's why elitism shows up again and again in mathematics, for the reason that you mentioned, that it's such an attractive thing. And that's why it's such a shame that so many people fear it.
3: Yeah. You know, I got to say, I think for all of us here, we certainly share that Greek idea that the mathematics is beautiful and enchanting. And then, again, based on how someone presents it, it it could very easily be brought up to an occult-like status, like many things, many things. I know... As, human, as a human species, we, of course, are a pattern-seeking people, and we're always looking for meaning. And if someone can, can you know, spin a story and use mathematics to back it up, I, I, I can very well see how people can be led to um, elevate people like Pythagoras to a cult-like figure, to a godlike status.
2: Now, spanning the Bridge of Time from ancient Greece to late medieval Europe were a great many empires. They came and they fell. And in that time, much information was lost to the Western world, preserved by the Islamic world. During this time, the Aristotelian view of science dominated and was backed up by the Christian church. The quote that we have is from a dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. It's that book that Galileo got persecuted for, and that in itself is an example of elitism. However, I think that you'll find that the content of this quote demonstrates another form of elitism.
1: One day I was at the home of a very famous doctor in Venice, where many persons came on account of their studies and others occasionally came out of curiosity to see some anatomical dissection performed by a man who was truly no less learned than he was a careful and expert anatomist. It happened on this day that he was investigating the source and origin of the nerves, about which there exists a notorious controversy between the Galenist and Aristotelian doctors. The anatomist showed that the great trunk of nerves leaving the brain and passing through the nape extended on down the spine and then branched out through the whole body, and that only a single strand as fine as a thread arrived at the heart. Turning to a gentleman whom he knew to be an Aristotelian philosopher, and on whose account he had been exhibiting and demonstrating everything with unusual care, he asked this man whether he was at last satisfied and convinced that the nerves originated in the brain and not in the heart. The philosopher, after considering for a while, answered, You have made me see this matter so plainly and so palpably that if Aristotle's text were not contrary to it, stating clearly that the nerves originate in the heart, I should be forced to admit it to be true.
3: Wow, um, that's absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm rereading that again uh, as I'm thinking about that. So you, you literally had an in- individual here who was clearly shown a dissection, and we clearly... See that the nerves do not originate in the heart. And yet he still says, if it were not for Aristotle's text saying that they do originate in the heart, then I'd be forced to admit that they don't.
2: And I think what this shows is a big problem with elitism at all. Proponents of elitism say that it preserves the knowledge, it keeps the knowledge away from those who would harm it. However, because elitism has such an intricate power structure, it can defy reason.
1: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: I mean, look at all the ancient mathematicians. They were all in very high positions of power. Archimedes was friends with the king of Syracuse.
1: So we've, we've discussed this before, that as an educator, my perception of that is that there are many who are not able to pursue mathematics or to pursue higher level thinking merely because they are focused on survival. By construction, mathematics and education can be very elitist because only people who have money and who have extra time are able to commit themselves wholly to that education. So there is some intrinsic uh, ability that elite have that maybe working class do not, both in ancient times and now, that they don't really have the room in their brain or the room in their lives to make mathematics
2: and education a priority. It almost reminds me of the problem of how poor people can't afford to buy in bulk, so they're stuck in a vicious cycle. It seems like you're suggesting that elitism itself is somewhat self-perpetuating. That's why it's lasted all these millennia.
3: You know, um, when I hear this story, there's so many things that I'm thinking about right now. And, you know, among what we said here, there's this, uh, there's this amazing reluctance to let go of an old worldview. But that's also a huge commentary on how exactly we work, uh, psychologically speaking, how, how is it that we're so comfortable with a a worldview? You know, I mean, you would think that we, you know, if, if we're presented with obvious evidence to the contrary, we would give up a worldview. But this is a clear indication that's just not the case. And, this is still this is something that I, I find deeply profound. I think of my own biases. Like this makes me think: Do I have my own biases that I simply will not let go of? You know, even even when when shown evidence to the contrary, it's a phenomenal question. the The question this also raises for me is: How do we go about being able to uh, uh, change our worldviews? You know,
2: and sometimes what it needs is a, a random component not to get too off topic, Um, Socrates, who we keep coming back to, defied the educational system of his time by simply asking questions instead of directly lecturing.
3: Oh, interesting. So maybe in your formative years, when you're introduced to who the authority is, maybe... I mean, this could be an interesting experiment.
2: In psychology, the age of 10 is known as the age of mastery. It's where the brain is still very neuroplastic, but it hasn't gone through the metamorphosis of puberty.
3: Okay. So then the stated goal is to raise kids or raise a generation that's able to critically think and to evaluate based on logic, just like in this quote here. A suggestion would be to have a small element of chaos or a small element of, oh gosh,
2: um, I'm, I'm struggling with the words right here. Um, a little bit of a stochastic input.
3: Can you can we clarify stochastic input? For...
2: Stochastic just means disordered or random. It's like jostling a bucket of sand to get it level.
3: Okay. So then how would that be implemented in an education system such that individuals do not get uh, to where they're susceptible to this elitism, to where they see, you know, one person as uh, infallible?
2: Well, that itself is a difficult question question to answer because any biases that a system will have can blind the system to the biases. I mean, by definition, the system would be blind to the biases. Even the randomness itself could be randomness that's targeted in a certain direction. If you have the bucket of sand and you're trying to make it level, but you have the bucket of sand not level, it's never going to be level. Wow.
1: As to education and how we can open children up to be able to accept knowledge uh, and not be married to it, right? To, to be able to think analytically and make their own decisions. We teach math as a fact. We teach it as a, as a known, right? We never actually teach children anywhere, really, I think, that math was developed. It was, to some extent, invented. There's always the argument of whether math was invented or discovered, and I think there's an element of both. But we never teach them that someone had to decide what numbers to use, what these symbols meant, right? Somebody had to decide that a number was its own concept rather than having to be specifically, you know, three represents three apples, right?
2: And if you look at a lot of very old languages, you could see evidence of this. Um, Just in English, we have a herd of sheep, but we have a flock of geese, Um, different words for plurals, um get actually to the point where there's different words for two or three objects in Proto-Indo-European. I believe that's correct. Along with the centuries of time between ancient Greece and medieval Europe came a deep deficit of knowledge. For centuries, engineering, cultural, and mathematical knowledge was lost to the West, Rare books were bleached and used to reprint common ones, and all knowledge of curatorship was preserved by a loose network of monasteries. It was on the latter half of that history that the peripatetic, that is to say the Aristotelian view, dominated and was supported by states as well as the monolithic medieval church. It was in this environment that thinkers such as Gerbert of Orlach, who was accused of convening with the devil, and Galileo, who was accused of heresy, struggled against elitism. Galileo, of course, was from Italy, And Italy was the heart of the Catholic Church. He had many friends high up in the church. And it was because of this that he felt safe publishing his treatise, The View Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. And we're going to read you a little excerpt. Of that right now, and it demonstrates something very deep about elitism at that time and perhaps today.
3: This this treatise, by the way, this is uh this is pretty deep stuff. It's a pretty thick uh, quote here. It, it, what's fascinating about this treatise is, as you'll see, it is um, a treatise between. I'm sorry, is it a doctor
2: and? It's uh, well the, the the book itself is a dialogue, uh, but the sec- excerpt is about a. A person who's a medical curiosity seeker refusing to believe what's right in front of him.
3: Yeah, this is a fascinating quote uh, without further ado.
2: So you could kind of see the situation that Galileo found himself in during that time. It was uh, not pleasant. I believe they put him under house arrest for that treatise. It didn't help that he cast the pope in the the simplicio, the simpleton character. Um, he did it as... A method of sort of endearment, but you know that could be taken very badly.
3: I had no idea about that. I mean, I knew I knew the standard. Well, I knew a little bit about Galileo, but I, I had no idea that he actually cast the the Pope as, as a simpleton. That's not going to bode well, especially during that time period when when the Pope is obviously well respected.
2: Yeah, the simpleton character, of course, in uh, these old treatises was the one who does the most learning. So it wasn't an unambiguously bad role.
3: Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I was not aware of that either.
2: Now. Of course, uh, that's one form of elitism. Galileo was very well-connected, and we're going to look at another very well-connected person um, who was born about 500 years earlier, Gerbert of Orlach. He was born in the heart of the Dark Ages. He was a clergyman who studied in Moorish Spain. During this time, he became familiar with Arabic numerals, far superior to the Roman numerals with which his peers were acquainted. The speed with which he was able to compute using these foreign symbols earned him a reputation for convening with the devil. He was even rumored to have a robotic head, which whispered him answers. Now, Amy, what do you think about the ramifications that elitism has for xenophobia with respect to the story?
1: Well, specifically, the fear of the Arabic numerals because they were foreign, because they were different, they didn't come from what was known or what was established, is hugely indicative of the elitism, that we don't want anything that isn't ours, that we didn't create, right? And it's a very closed-minded approach to learning, which perhaps is why it occurred in the Dark Ages, or why the Dark Ages were so dark, that we were so closed-minded to other opportunities or other ways of looking at the world.
2: The the attitude, of course, seems to be something unfortunately human. It continues to this day. Um, People don't like views that they view as foreign. Um, it wasn't really until what Leonardo of Pisa, Fibonacci, um, more commonly known as, was able to really popularize the Arabic numerals. Now one interesting thing about Gerbert of Urlach is that he did attain a great amount of power. He became Pope Sylvester II, um, yet people were so set in their ways that they still viewed him as convening with the devil. Of course, when the church had more political power, that was more of a more of a common view.
3: So wow, you know, when, once people uh, peg you as something, it's 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 very hard to change their mind.
2: Of course, uh, this was a time where you had um, just a little later, you had uh, Pope Innocent with their incredible amount of debauchery. So it was a different, it was a different time, a different understanding politically altogether. So what would you say the repercussions are of? Gerbert. I'm not sure if it's so much repercussion as it is sort of a barometer for that time. um, Because it was so in the heart of the Dark Ages that information really could not be disseminated. He didn't have much of an impact on the way that the Western world viewed Arabic numerals. They were that set in their ways that even the Pope couldn't change that considerably.
1: So when were Arabic numerals come to
2: place? About uh, two to three hundred years later with Fibonacci. Okay. He popularized them. Actually, uh, Florence, um, Italy uh, banned them um, because they thought that shopkeepers would use them to falsify records because I don't know why they didn't think that that could be done with Roman numerals. But there you go.
3: Wow! Wow! Again, kind of like maybe the American system and the metric system. You know, there's just a lot of uh, uh, resistance to to changing to something that can be shown to be more efficient.
2: Well, you could take my gallons of milk from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've I understood. But yeah, it's very. Yeah, I believe it's very similar. So why do you think
1: it took two hundred years? Was it just exposure to the Arabic numerals and more and more convincing? Because the we discussed the the Galileo quote that. Even though we can see very clearly the evidence that something is true, that something is better, we still accept what was before, what changed that allowed us to take on Arabic numerals.
2: See, I'm not sure if it was economic forces or uh, what, because when the economy was not growing during the Middle Ages, when it was, in fact, completely stagnant, um, this was a time where guilds would burn down houses of anybody who was more efficient than the average person. Uh, you don't have a real need for growth. You don't have a need for improvement. So there's, there's no real effect. Something that can have an improvement in that fashion w- will make. I think it's sort of like, like Psy, the a guy from Korea. He made a bunch of other songs, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, some trends and forces happened, and then Gangnam Style got billions of views.
1: Well, does it correlate with the the Renaissance, perhaps? relinquishing of control of the church over over development that this that was Galileo, the tipping point of of allowing knowledge to flourish again.
2: If you ask me, I do think that the Renaissance was it does seem to correlate with that. Yeah, that's when all the merchants started using the Arabic numerals. That's when uh, Leonardo da Vinci's boyfriend invented modern accounting. Moving just a few hundred years forward, we come to Galois. Galois lived in politically tumultuous early 19th century France. Dead by 20 in war, but immortalized by his ideas, one ignorant of elitism would believe that this was inevitable. However, because he lacked much formal education, his notes were often ignored by the academy because they were too messy. This is the form that we argue that medieval elitism metamorphosed into. Now, it's true that during this time, there was a lot of people reformulating mathematics, creating a solid foundation for it that had to do with axioms, uh, some which would come crashing down in the late 19th century and early 20th century. I've seen it argued that elitism survives through the overdoctrinization of axiomatic systems.
3: Real quick, just uh, for those who, again, are less familiar with mathematical vernacular, can we talk about uh, what exactly axioms are and what their place is in mathematics?
2: What an axiom is, is a rule that you go by. Let me give you an example. Is that a straight line can be continued indefinitely. That's to say that if you draw a line, you can make it longer that's a really simple, very clear and intuitive idea that's basically an axiom. Would you like to expand on that, Amy?
1: Well, as I recall, that is the one axiom that has yet to be proven. That Of, of his axioms, that is the one that, that we cannot prove.
3: All right, yeah, I was just curious for the sake of our listener. You know, in fact, we could even just... For I mean, clarity. my perception of an
1: axiom is it's our foundation, that we we suppose these things to be true, that much of the time these things are obvious, and so supposing them to be true does not require a leap in thought. Um, but it's from these axioms, we can claim other things. We can prove other things. But the axioms are the foundation.
3: The Google definition of an axiom, a statement or proposition that is regarded as being established, it's accepted, or is self-evidently true. And again, I think you said a line goes on forever or two parallel lines will never intersect.
2: An example of a modern axiom is a uh, uh, piano's axioms, uh, they're about whole numbers, and one of the axioms is that if two numbers successors, five is four's successor, 100 is 99's successor, if they're equal, then the numbers are equal. See, it's very obvious, and you use it to prove other things. You could use that and five other axioms, which I won't go into, but they'll be on the website, to prove that one plus one equals two. It's actually kind of fun. Nice,
3: nice. I look forward to that. I- I look forward to seeing those on on the website just for something. Just as a fun
1: little side note here, the inductive proof is something that philosophers, my brother is a philosopher, and he gets very frustrated with inductive proofs, and that's where you, you you assume it's true a finite number of times and then show that it's true one more time, and therefore it's always true. You have to remember I went to a tech school, so a nerdy place. I went to the bar one night, and I won a beer for proving that an odd number squared minus another odd number squared will always be divisible by four.
3: Oh, my
2: gosh. Yeah.
3: Amazing. (laughs) Okay, so that's obviously a challenge for the listeners then.
2: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?
1: In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
2: is um, one of my professors called it the domino analogy. If you hit the first domino, and prove that it hits the second domino, and then you prove that any domino hits the domino after that, you can prove that all the dominoes fall. That's induction.
1: Nice, nice. I like that well, analogy. It works.
3: Okay. And then I realized that was a rather lengthy aside to explain what an axiom is. However, I think that's part of our mission is to make mathematics clear. So we know now that an axiom is a statement that we regard as true for the purpose of our proof.
2: And if you don't understand what an axiom is, you don't truly understand what it has to do with elitism.
3: Yes. Also, I think we can say that you can't just say, well, that axiom isn't true. Or in other words... How, how how often do people challenge axioms in mathematics?
2: There's a big problem with axioms in the late 1800s. Okay. Uh, basically, somebody said, what if there's a group of stuff where the definition of that group of stuff was that it couldn't have itself in it? And it, because they love playing these games. That's actually Lewis Carroll from Alice in Wonderland hated this kind of math. Oh, my gosh. But... Uh, Basically, you can prove that there's a contradiction from some very, very reasonable-sounding axioms. Like, if you have several groups of things, you could pick one out of everything. That's one of the most controversial ones. It's the axiom of choice.
3: Oh, wow. You know what? That's something that we should also put on the website. This is really, really cool axiom games. And again, what you said earlier, that it's fascinating.
2: These axioms seem self-evident, but when taken together, they fall apart in certain cases. um, That's when the foundation of math has... Difficulties which happens every once in a great while
1: well and it's led to other branches of mathematics that set theory came from That issue with axioms that we had to introduce new Axioms to develop set theory we, we kept coming up with paradoxical issues that you you have the set of all sets that do not contain themselves doesn't contain
2: itself Yeah, so set you could think of it as a bucket that you put things in you could put other buckets in this magical bucket
3: Oh, and look at this. We even have a definition here. This one is provided by Wikipedia. <laughs> in mathematics, a set is a well defined collection of distinct objects considered as an object in its own right. For example, uh, you know, two, four, and six are distinct objects when they are considered separately. But when they are considered collectively, they form a single set of size three, written in braces two, four, six. There you go. There's for our, our listeners. So we've, we've even delved into what an axiom is and what a set is.
2: And of course, you could tell by the fact that we're talking about the late 19th, early 20th centuries that we're getting into modern elitism. Mm-hmm. Now, modern elitism has to do somewhat with classical education, how frustration and simple things like childhood ADHD are not tolerated. Do you have anything to add on this, Amy, as an educator yourself?
1: Well, from the transition of the, you know, you talk about Socratic seminar, that, that knowledge was something that was shared, that was questioned, that the the whole Socratic seminar is about asking questions in order to delve deeper into a topic, that we transition from that style of learning, of collaborating and questioning into the more recent version of the classical education of being lectured, right? I give you information and you absorb it, that there there was very little room for discussion, very little room for any any kind of analysis, that it was, I'm telling you, what is true and you will learn it.
2: Yeah. And of course that doesn't foster uh, critical thinking except amongst, like you were mentioning earlier, the people who can afford an educational environment that can foster that sort of thing.
1: Well, even now in in modern times, we, we lecture, we give notes, we tell something that is a fact and we, certainly in mathematics and to some extent as, as well in science, we don't, question anymore right we we tell students that they need to think analytically but we don't ever give them an experience on how to do that or give them the opportunity to do that we give them an outline of the scientific method and have them fill in the blanks that they never have to ponder what it is to to prove something
2: yeah and the the fact that you brought up the scientific method That's almost completely antithetical to the spirit of the scientific method is to not question it.
3: I actually wanted to talk specifically about how that's currently being addressed. Now, I was a teacher for five years before I became an engineer, and I was a teacher in uh, two charter schools, actually. And one major push, one buzzword that you're going to hear in charter schools is project-based learning. This is the attempt. This is the attempt to, to give students a position where they don't only take the knowledge that was told to them, but they're given a project with which they, they then solve themselves and hopefully can see a practical application where they have to make decisions that will then uh, help them to discover the concepts in math. One of them involved, actually it involves simulating a race in, in MATLAB of all things. That, that was pretty cool. I don't have the, the actual code right now, but um, do you all do much project-based learning in math at your school, Amy?
1: No, that that's really there. There's no time that we have so much we have to get through in a single year. And that is another aspect of elitism that we are expected to teach. And and all the research says that relevancy is important to (sighs) understanding. And then we are required to teach things that are, are really not relevant until you are able to apply them.
3: Oh, that's so frustrating. It is. Because all of this is the core of breaking math of our podcast. We want to make math relevant. So, for you know, again, for all the listeners, if we had a call-in line, we could have listeners call in and rant about how much they hate math. Um,
2: well, one uh, thing I wanted to bring up real quick is uh, Trachtenberg Speed Math. Ooh. This was developed by a man who was uh, persecuted by the Nazis in concentration camp to keep him sane. I've taught this to students who don't think that they could do math, I tutor, and they are amazed when they're able to multiply a 30-digit number by 11 in their head. It's a way that has been proven to work, it's been proven to work well, but because of the inertia of elitism, it has not been adopted and improved upon. By all means, To multiply a number by 11, Yes. Write down the number. Okay. So I'll just pick a number. So, uh, yeah, if you have a pencil ready, write down 1, 2, 4, 7, 5, 1, 1.
3: Okay, got it. So I'm just just exactly what you said, that random array,
2: right? Yep. Now the digit on the right, you just write it down right below it. Now the next one, you just add the neighbor. So you add 1 plus 1, you get 2. You add the 5 in the 1, you get 6. Seven and the five, you get 12, two carry the one. Four plus seven, add one, you get 12, carry the one. Two plus four, six, seven with the one carried. Okay. Three and then one. And that's all there is to it. And it's a list of tricks like this, and students love learning them. Uh, There's a group of remedial students that Trachtenberg taught that became more successful than the gifted students.
3: We just learned a a fabulous method of multiplying very, very quickly. I wish I knew this.
2: Yes, and um, if you'd like to learn more about it, there's going to be information on the paper for this episode online. The answer that you should have gotten for multiplying 1,247,511 by 11 is 13,722,621.
3: Boom. That's so cool. So look at that. Look at that. Now our our listeners, those who didn't know it before, are now empowered with that.
2: I'm going to teach you how to square a two-digit number pretty much in your head. Right now, use some paper if you'd like.
3: Is this another one from the same gentleman?
2: Exactly. Trachtenberg Speed Math. Outstanding. So write down 23, but put the 2 and the 3 sort of far away from one another. Okay. Oh, I think I've seen this one. Now, above the 3, you write 3 squared, which is 9, but write 0, 9.
3: Can you clarify, you said write, oh, as in write zero nine 9 as the 9, like a two-digit 9. Yes. Okay, okay, I understand, I understand.
2: And then write zero four 4 above the 2, so you should have zero four zero nine above the 2 and the 3. Okay, got it. Now multiply 2 by 3 and you get 6. Double that and you get 12. Okay. Put the 1 above the 4 and the 2 above the 0. The 1 above the 4. Which 0? The, the 0 right next to the 9 and the 4.
3: Okay, the one above the four, and then the two above the zero that is next to the nine.
2: Yes, to the left oh, yeah. of the nine.
3: It's a little tricky. It it's going to be very helpful when people can see a file that has this.
2: Oh yeah, but then you just add, then you just take the pile of numbers that you made and add it up. You get nine, two, five. 529 is twenty three squared. Okay.
3: When you say add it up, I'm just following your um, directions as a column.
2: Right? As columns, correct. Okay. Okay.
3: Very good. Let me add these up real quick then. So.
2: So you drag down the 9. Okay. Then you add the 2 and the 0. Okay. Then you add the 1 and the 4.
3: Okay. So and then the you five. bring down
2: the last 0. Okay. And you can do this with other numbers. For 97, I'll do this one quickly. You could uh, re-listen if it's too quick.
3: Let's see what the final number should have been.
2: You write 8, 1 uh, above the nine, four, 9, above the 7, multiply 9 by 7. And you get sixty three. Multiply sixty three by two, and it's one hundred twenty six. So you write one two six um, above the eight one and the four. Add that together, and you get nine zero. Carry the one. Three plus one is four, and then nine. So ninety seven squared is nine thousand four hundred and nine. Wow. Eight one four nine.
3: Ninety seven squared. That's <SSSSSSR> a really in the thousands. look at that I just I just did it on my calculator you're right it's exactly 9409
2: and on the paper you'll see how to add together a column of uh, a column of numbers 13 wide and 13 high in just a couple of minutes um, using casting the method of casting out 11s uh, there will be several examples oh this is exciting this is really cool
1: well what gets me about this we never get to play in math that it's always work it's always a job that, oh, man, i got to go to math class. Unless it's my class, in which case they're excited because my class is awesome.
2: <laughs> That's why I was so grateful for having a math teacher as a mother. I never viewed math as a chore. I thought it was fun the whole time. We'd m- multiply and add and subtract fractions in the car. Um, I got a book on mathematical games, future episode. And it was just part of art for me.
3: Your mom was a math teacher. How, how cool. So tell me uh, what-, what she taught.
2: Uh, she's taught everything up to trigonometry. We should have your mom on an episode, I think. I I think the listeners would love that. Meet
3: Jonathan's mother, and she could tell us all kinds of embarrassing stories. Okay, I'm done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh Well, it's true in education that we don't really encourage students to try things on their own. We give them assignments. We give them tasks. We teach them that this is how it's done. And it really isn't until grad school that they're encouraged to To think about it their own way that even undergrad you're learning the foundations you're still you're still learning how to communicate in your fields that you never really get an opportunity to discover anything for yourself until suddenly in grad school you're dropped in and you have to come up with this whole project on your own and you have no idea where to start because you're used to someone else telling you what to do.
3: Wow! Yeah, I, uh, I I know of many students who who feel that way um, when they're doing their PhD dissertation. Uh, that that terrifying freedom of oh, what do I do? You know, uh, nobody is holding their hand anymore.
1: Right. We never get the opportunity to explore, and so we don't even know how to when we finally are given that opportunity. Oh. I mentioned it once or twice the the opportunity aspect of being that nowadays it's middle class and up. Right, mm-hmm. that you have the opportunity to explore these, yeah. I mean, STEM, really, yes. uh, that impoverished people just don't. And it's like a, there's a there's a systemic issue. And then beyond that, we have the, if you are not taught the classical way, if you don't have the piece of paper, that you're never going to be taken seriously. That that is not so much systemic as it is the the elitism that we've inherited.
3: Yeah, you got to have your degree, mm-hmm. which... I mean, I don't know. So here's my question, though. I understand the frustrations with gotta have the degree, and it's also inaccessible when colleges do cost a lot of money. You know, I guess the question is: Is it bad to require a degree? Is it, is it a successful measure of? some base competence
1: well there's a little bit of movement away from that with places like i want to say like google that if you can prove yourself Mm -hmm. that you are capable and motivated you will get a job Nice, uh, especially in the technological age where where information is so readily available without having to go through formal education but i think that mathematics specifically is still pretty separate from that phenomena yeah um really the only exception I can think of in recent history is Ramanujan. And he had to have somebody vouch for him who mm. was in the elite uh, before he was ever taken seriously. Wow. And so that, I mean, really is what it's come to. And and I think for the most part, it is required that you know the, I guess the, the language that yeah. you're trying to communicate in, that you do need to know the formal classical education version of mathematics in order to be able to communicate whatever it is you've discovered or whatever it is you've theorized to the rest of the populace. So having that kind of common language mm-hmm. is important and I think going to school to learn that is is valid um, and maybe the piece of paper as well that you need that piece of paper that says I know how to talk to you oh yeah but it also I think it's overrated
3: can I'd be say. restricting yeah yes yes it can be.
2: Why is elitism so prevalent and what can we learn from its role in mathematics to minimize its damage? These are questions that circumstance forces us to ask ourselves, and it is up to us as a society to understand the role that freedom should have in education, if freedom is indeed antithetical to elitist corruption. We've explored the businessmen of the Nile, the mental explorations of Athens, the revolutionary thinkers of the Renaissance, and indeed modern students, and how they are all influenced by elitism. As much as we have improved upon the barbarism of the past and established a system where at least middle-class people have leisure for thought, we still have a significant way to go. But with every improvement that rids the world of an inefficiency, comes new modalities of thought, and new rich histories are written. I'm Jonathan. I'm Gabriel. And I'm Amy. And this has been Breaking Math. A simple model of the weather, populations of prey and predators, leaky buckets on a ferris wheel, and magnets on a pendulum. What do these all have in common? You've heard of the butterfly effect, being may not know as much as you think about chaotic systems and neither do mathematicians prepare to learn about one of the most philosophically revolutionary branches of mathematics in the past 500 years next on breaking math chaos and fractals
1: well it's exciting because we don't actually know the repercussions yet that we develop that's often the case that we develop mathematics before we understand what they're useful for. Oh, man. That's what physicists are for. So really. we,
3: we, we don't know what we're getting into. Like what if by, by talking about it, what if we make a big black hole in the studio? Are, you, are we sure we wanna go there? We probably shouldn't do that. Yeah. No, no. We, we should. That's why it's called breaking math because guys, we, we broke math.